You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Happiness, meditation, and money. Those are the focuses of this week's show. We're going to talk about them all with Dan Harris. I know that's a name that you know well. We have all watched Dan for many years on ABC News. He's currently an anchor for ABC News Nightline, the weekend edition of Good Morning America as well. In 2014, he did something that all authors aspire to do. He published a book, his first, 10% Happier, which became a number one New York Times bestseller. He's also got a must-listen podcast, a meditation app, and... He's out with his second book called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. And if you've been listening to this show for a while now, then you know how much that title speaks to me. (laughs) Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I need to take it back for everybody who don't know your happiness story. Yeah. So 2004, you had a panic attack on national television. I did. What happened? Uh, I was you as a as a veteran of uh, morning television will know there used to be a position uh, very recently phased out actually uh, where some, they would have a newsreader the person would come on at the top of each hour and read the headlines right so I was filling in that day for Robin Roberts who was at that point the newsreader is now the main co-host of Good Morning America and I had done the job a million times or I had filled in for her a million times. So I didn't know – I didn't have any reason to foresee what was about to happen, which was that I basically just freaked out. I They tossed – or the main anchors of the show at that time was Charlie Gibson and Diane Sawyer said, OK, here's Dan Harris with the headlines. And as soon as I was starting my shtick, I was supposed to do you know six stories, little quick stories. and yeah, six stories in yeah, one minute, right. Something like that. And <laughs> uh, I just – my heart started racing. My palms were sweaty. My mouth dried up. My lungs seized up. I couldn't – talk, which is a pretty important thing to be able to do when you're on live television. And so I had to quit in the middle, and it was really embarrassing. And even more embarrassing is what caused it. So after I after I had the panic attack, I went to a doctor who asked me a bunch of questions to try to figure out what was going on. And one of the questions he asked was, do you do drugs? And the answer was yes. I, I was doing drugs at the time. I had spent a lot of time as a young, ambitious correspondent in the early aughts Mm -hmm. after 9-11 in war zones. Um, I was in my early 30s and kind of gung-ho. And so I was in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Israel, West Bank, Gaza, Iraq many, many times. And uh, I got depressed and didn't even know I was depressed and self-medicated with recreational drugs, including cocaine. And that, according to my doctor, is enough to raise, artificially raise the level of adrenaline in your brain and 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 for somebody with a baseline sort of anxious state and uh, history of stage fright, so I was always, even though I was used to being on TV, I was always a little bit nervous. But having that artificial boost of adrenaline put me over the edge. So in the direct aftermath, how did you react? And how did 
that put you on the path to searching for this happiness cure? It was not direct. Uh, so I, I um, it wasn't like I had a panic attack and quit doing drugs, which I did. I did quit doing drugs. And then all of a sudden I started meditating and everything was rainbows and unicorns. It was a little bit complicated. Um, so the first thing I did was agree to go see this doctor once or twice a week for many years, many, many years. I still see him occasionally, actually. And uh, so I quit doing drugs under his uh, guidance because mm-hmm. um, it's not an easy thing to do. And you know, I want to be clear. It's not like I wasn't, you, you know, doing cocaine every day or anything like that. It was recreational, intermittent, but still, psychologically, I was, you know, it was I was really I liked it. So, well, and I think it's, I mean, people who listen, whether they do drugs or whether they have a glass, mainly two, of wine yes. a night, can relate to the fact that it's not easy to give up. Absolutely not. So, I. So what did I do to deal with my sort of well-being? I went to see a doctor. I um, quit doing drugs. I was already pretty much into exercise at the time, but he really convinced me that I needed to really have a holistic approach to my health because um, panic disorder, which I definitely have, the best way to prevent it is is to treat yourself very well, to really take good care of yourself. It was many years later that I ultimately uh, stumbled upon meditation and was, you know, I, I, I was not, <laughs> I was not into meditation. I was not on my radar in any way. I thought it was bullshit. Complete. I don't. Can I say that on this podcast? You can say that. Okay. So just complete bullshit. And uh, you know, I was a, a fidgety skeptic. I, I was. I am super fidgety. Very type A. Uh, don't like sitting still. I've been playing the drums since I was ten years old. You know, I'm very. You know, always kind of tappy tappy and. Uh, I also, to the extent that I had ever thought about meditation, thought it was for people who were hippies and smelled like patchouli. It was <laughs> what changed my mind was just seeing that there was a bunch of science that that strongly suggests it's really good for you. So how'd you start? I mean, because I am, while not very fidgety, an absolute skeptic. I mean, I would so much rather to go out and run 10 miles mm-hmm. than I would rather sit still for 10 minutes. There... There's no mutual exclusivity here. I think running 10 miles is great. I, I really do. I mean, I'm, I just came from SoulCycle with my wife. There you go. Uh, so I'm, I'm pro-exercise in all of its forms. I think that what the science is telling us is that uh, when we think about the levers we can pull when it comes to our personal well-being, so exercise, sleep, diet, having good relationships, meaningful work, Meditation just has to be on that list. We, for, for too long, it really just wasn't um, because the science suggests it can lower your blood pressure, boost your immune system, literally rewire key parts of your brain that have to do with stress, self-awareness, compassion, uh, focus, all of the issues that we're dealing with today with tech overload. Um, so it's, it's really good for a lot of our modern woes. That being said, how do you start is a very common question. I don't think it needs to... Uh, two things to know. One, I don't think it needs to be some big, long, involved deal. Uh, I'm of the view that a great way to start, which I did, is how I did it, with five to ten minutes a day. And if you feel like five to ten minutes is too much, one minute, most days, you know, one minute daily-ish is absolutely a good way to start. Because what what you're trying to do in meditation can happen in a second. All you're trying to do in meditation is to wake up to the fact that you have a nonstop conversation in your head all the time, most of it negative. It's super repetitive. Mm -hmm. It's all super, it's self-referential. 
uh, as a friend of mine likes to say that when he thinks about the voice in his head, he feels like he's been hijacked by the most boring person alive who just says the same <laughs> shit over and over. So when you're unaware of this nonstop conversation, it owns you. That's why, you know, the thoughts are these little dictators that put your hand in the fridge when you're not hungry or have you saying dumb things uh, to your boss when it doesn't make much sense or checking your email when you're in the middle of a, a conversation with somebody else. And you can wake up to this conversation in a second. Just me talking right now will alert you to the fact that, oh, yeah, I have this stream of consciousness that is coursing through my the windshield of my mind. And one minute is enough to wake up to that so that the inner conversation doesn't own you. I think a lot of people have that inner conversation around money. I mean, yeah, money sure. is so high on I the list it. of stressful things in our lives. So, okay, yes. so when when it takes hold about money, how do you shut it down? I don't think shutting it down is the move, actually, because I think trying to have an adversarial relationship with the voice in your head is um, unwise and bound to be unsuccessful. I think, actually, the the miracle of meditation is that it turns out just being aware of it, just knowing that you're perseverating about money or your weight or your relationships or your relationship to your boss, whatever, actually can, at least for a nanosecond or two, take some of the teeth out of the anxiety, just seeing that it is happening so that you can kind of step out of the traffic, step out of the habitual conversation you're having with yourself, the habitual story you're telling yourself, allows you to see, you know, maybe... Maybe maybe on the 17th time I run through all the horrible things that are going to happen if I don't get my my financial statements where I want them to. Maybe maybe I maybe I've worried enough and my and my attention would be better used elsewhere. Because I don't think it's unreasonable to worry about money. I think it's unreasonable to worry too much about money. Because if you worry too much, you're wasting your time. So you can cross the line between uh, useless rumination and what I call constructive anguish. A certain amount of worrying makes sense, but we tend to take it too far. And meditation just allows you to boost your self-awareness to see, oh, yeah, Maybe I don't need to be running through this over and over and over again. I can use my attention to think about something more constructive. We're going to come back and meditate a little bit in just a second. But before we do that, I want to talk about the relationship between meditation and happiness. Mm -hmm. As we talk about things like money, it's one of those things that not just stresses us out, but makes us really, really unhappy. Mm In your happiness work, how does that fit together? Well, I think it is worth noting that many of the most prominent CEOs in our culture and many of the most prominent and successful brands, the companies, are embracing meditation in a really robust way. You know, the the leadership at Twitter, Google, Aetna, Procter & Gamble, Apple. In fact, my company has been involved in in, uh, working with some of these companies. So that's not a coincidence. It's also being embraced by many athletes. Novak Djokovic, the Chicago Cubs. There's a reason for this because it can boost your focus and lower your emotional reactivity and just makes you better at your game in whatever game you're playing. In terms of how it can change your relationship to your money, to your finances. I go back to what I was saying before. It's not about not caring. It's about boosting your resiliency so that you're not so wrapped up in the stories you're telling yourself that you can't function. And that is what I think meditation can help you avoid. 
it's about giving yourself, I guess, the space to make the better decisions. I mean, that's, that's what right. it sounds like. That's right. A lot of the meditation cliches make me, you know, want to put a pencil through my eye. But, <laughs> but what there's a great cliche, which is that what meditation helps you do is to respond wisely to things instead of reacting blindly. And so it's just about. Uh, uh, so just let me put some meat on the bone here. Just say you check your checking account balance, and it's not where you want it to be. Um, that might send you off on a spiral of blind reactions, kicking the dog, being mean to your kids, uh, being irritable, et cetera, et cetera. Spending whatever's there because you figure it doesn't matter anyway. Right, right, exactly. Uh, that's reacting blindly to the, uh, stimulus. Responding wisely would be to be like, all right, I see, I can see I'm having all these urges to do these things, to spend, to be irritable, to go into a, a sort of psychological death or shame spiral, but just seeing it allows you to not be owned by it and to take wise res- action in response to a genuine problem. I hear that you're saying it's about control, which is so much of what we talk about on this show. It's a good time to remind everybody that Her Money is sponsored by Fidelity Investments. We are working together to encourage all women, all people, while we have Dan Harris here, to be in the front seat when it comes to their financial health. Why? Because women are in the driver's seats in so many aspects of our lives, managing careers and families and more. And yet, when it comes to making decisions about money specifically, too many of us delegate to someone else. One thing is really clear. When it comes to investing, you always want to be in the front seat by knowing what you own, knowing what you owe, what your goals are and having an annual financial checkup. You can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are happy to be with Dan Harris. He's the author of 10% Happier and Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. For people out there who say things about their own personal happiness, like, well, I know I'll be happy when I get this job, or I know I'll be happy when I find this relationship, or when I'm making this much money. What do you say to them? It's very common psychology. It is. Um, I'm going to drop some Buddhist science here. So I'm, I'm, I can't believe I'm the kind of guy who's going to talk about the Buddha, but here we go. Okay. The So when I talk about meditation, by the way, it's it's a secular form of meditation called mindfulness meditation, but it's derived from Buddhism. Um, and uh, what I, as a sort of um, uh, agnostic, like about the Buddha was that he didn't make many metaphysical claims. He didn't claim to know the origin of the universe. He was just a, a normal mortal human. There's no God in Buddhism, and it can be practiced as uh, sort of um, a philosophy in action rather than as a religion. So, But the Buddha's principal pronouncement upon becoming enlightened, whatever that means, was life is suffering. Now, that's actually a mistranslation. He, We, in English, use the word suffering. Buddha, the Buddha didn't mean that life is like having your innards pecked out by crows. What he meant is that life is going to be unsatisfying if you're always thinking that um, I need to get pleasant stuff and avoid unpleasant stuff. If you spend your whole life thinking, when I get that job, when I get that savings account to where I want it to be, then all my problems will be solved. And then, you know, I will, you know, uh, it will be green pastures as far as the eye can see. But think about it. How many 
promotions have you had? How many pieces of cake have you enjoyed? How many vacations have you gone on? How many movies have you seen? And are you done? Of course not. We're insatiable. And in this way, the pursuit of happiness, which is enshrined in America's founding documents, becomes the source of our unhappiness. And this is the primordial lie we are telling ourselves over and over again. As you said before, as soon as I get that next job, as soon as I get my savings to where I want it to be, then I will be happy. Well, and we can't stop because one of the things that we've learned from behavioral finance, which is now studied in all of these academic institutions across the country, is that human beings can't stop comparing. Yeah, we well, can't. That's that's true too. Comparing mind is actually a a term in meditation circles. It's a thing to notice that you're doing. Some of us, our finances may be fine, but we keep looking at the guy down the hall or the woman down the hall who's doing better than us. By the way, for female listeners, I think comparing mind actually can be very healthy when you talk about pay and equity because we do need to address that. So Absolutely. a certain amount of comparing mind makes sense. There is, it's reasonable to have outrage, being married to a woman myself who's dealt with some of these issues, it's reasonable to have outrage that you aren't being paid what you are worth. However, spending so much time in a spiral around comparing, and we do it on every level, uh, how our kids are compared to other people's kids, how, how fit we are compared to other people's fitness, and how um, our relationships with our spouses are, blah, blah, blah. It's just what meditation is useful for is just to see, oh, yeah, I'm doing this again. And sometimes, not every time, but sometimes just seeing, oh, yeah, I'm lost in a comparing mind. This is a painful state of mind can pop you out of it. You may go back into it a nanosecond later, but meditation is just the exercise, the bicep curl for your brain that helps you not be so carried away by this nonsense not, and, to, and to like finally get the joke. So you came here from SoulCycle. <laughs> I was on the Peloton this morning okay, where you cool. see the 4,000 other people who have taken this class before you <laughs> and where you yes. rank. And I yeah. turn it off, but I turn it on again at the end just to make sure I haven't slipped into the bottom quartile. So teach me. Take us through, me and everybody listening, take us through a starter meditation. Great. I will say that uh, I've been doing indoor cycling for many years, and uh, I've been in a lot of these classes where you can see the comparison rate. And I have some beefs with SoulCycle, and I mostly do it because my wife got really into it, and I want to, you know, it's fun for us to do together, sure. and I want to support that. But one thing I really like about SoulCycle is there's no competition. No. And no. you're just competing against yourself, which for my psychology is actually really good. I will drive hard, but I'm not stuck in the misery of, like, wa looking around and comparing myself. Um, anyway, so basic meditation. We'll just do, we'll, Why don't we do, like, a one- to two-minute meditation? Great. Okay, so you're actually going to do it? I'm going to do it. Okay, cool. All right, so there are really only three steps to beginning uh, mindfulness meditation. The first is to kind of sit reasonably straight. You don't have to be ramrod straight, but comfortable, but with a, with a spine that's reasonably straight, which can help avoid an unintended nap. Um, ha <laughs> having said that, though, if you fall asleep, worse things could happen, and it may just be... a feedback that says you need more sleep. Okay, I will try not to fall asleep. That's fine if you fall asleep. I will wake you up. So that's the first step. Uh, usually people close their eyes. If you don't want to close your eyes, you can kind of gaze at a neutral spot um, somewhere They're in front closed. of you. Okay. So the second step is just bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. Just pick one spot where the breath is most prominent. Usually that's your nose or your chest or your belly. And you're not thinking about your breath. This is a key distinction. You're actually just feeling the raw data of the physical sensations. The breath coming in and going out. Okay. The third step 
is the key. Because as soon as you try to do this, your mind will go into full-on mutiny mode. You're going to start thinking about what's for lunch? What, do I need a haircut? Why did Dances with Wolves beat Goodfellas for Best Picture in 1991? Where did gerbils run wild? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and the whole game is just to notice that you've become distracted and start again. And again. And again. And again. And the likelihood that you will stay with your breath for more than a nanosecond is de minimis. And that's not a problem. Many of us especially as type A folks, as soon as we get distracted, our ego swoops in and tells us this BS story about how we're failed meditators. But actually, the moment you notice you've become distracted and you start again, that is a victory. And it's a victory of real consequence because when you see how crazy you are, the craziness doesn't own you as much. So again, you're just feeling your breath coming in, going out. If you've noticed that you're distracted, mentally give a, yourself a pat on your back because that moment is magic and you are changing your relationship with your inner narrator, which so often is giving you shitty ideas. All right. You're done. I'm done. You are, That officially is meditation. All right. I, I mean, the thing I noticed most was when you pointed out, I've always thought of my breath, breath in my gut. And that you said it was at my nose. Like, I was very focused on my nose during that entire yeah. exercise. You can pick, you know, it could be your nose, your chest, but your belly. It doesn't matter. And the breath is, there's nothing particularly special or sacred about the breath. It's just kind of portable and always with you. And if it's not, then um, you dial 911. So, but you can focus on, some people freak out about focusing on their breath. You just focus on the feeling of your rear end on the chair, your hands touching. You... As you are catching your mind wandering mm -hmm. and bringing it back? I mean, is it everything else has to wait? You don't have to. So the one tweak I would say to what you just said, which is 99% correct, is just you don't need to have an adversarial relationship to the thoughts. They're going to come. That's inevitable. The mind secretes thoughts. That's what it does. What you're doing in this in this exercise, which seems very simple, but is actually very hard, um, is you're changing your relationship to your thoughts. You're not so owned by them. So the thought, oh my God, I'm never going to get my finances together. I will never get that next job. I will never get paid what I deserve. You can just see that is a thought. It has, it's as my meditation teacher likes to say, it's little more than nothing. Sometimes it's connected to reality. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's absolutely batshit. And so the point is just to notice our inner life is a cauldron of urges and impulses and desires and thoughts and we don't have to be owned by it. We don't have to be manipulated all the time by the malevolent puppeteer of your ego. You can cut those strings, and that is super useful. You're not going to cut it forever. I've been meditating for nine years, and I still get into bad moods. I still say something that will ruin the next 48 hours of my marriage. I still eat too much like I did last night. Um, but that I do a lot less of that, and I'm much more quick to apologize. Tactically, yes. how long does it take to feel confident in this? Mm -hmm. And how long each day do you do it? So uh, if somebody comes up to you and says, like, I've nailed this meditation thing, I would be very skeptical. This is not like spin where you just kind of <laughs> can get really good at it. And you just, you know, you will get better with time. By the way, you, your attention, your ability to stay with your breath. I've seen this in my own practice, which, you know, and again, I'm not naturally super focused. 
But over time, doing quite a bit of it, I've just gotten better at it. So it is a skill at which you can improve. But I fail at meditation all the time, quote unquote, fail at meditation all the time. But it's just coming back to the knowledge that failing is success in this particular arena. So in terms of time, you know, five to 10 minutes a day, I think is a beautiful habit. And from speaking to the neuroscientists, so I'm friends with a lot of these guys and and women now who study the brain and what meditation does to the brain, five to 10 minutes a day seems to be enough to derive many of the advertised benefits. But if if that's too much for you, one minute is great. And we have a lot of one-minute meditations on the 10% Happier app, and we also have a lot of five- and 10-minute meditations. So just do what you want. But you also, you know, uh, this is going to make me a terrible businessman, you don't necessarily need an app. Those instructions that I just gave, feel your breath coming in and going out. Every time you get distracted, start again. You can do that on your own. You can do that on the subway. You can do that in the back of an Uber. You can do that before, when you've parked your car in the driveway before you go in and deal with your kids. This is this is not rocket science. I think it can help to have guided instructions, uh, which is why I think having an app is a good idea, but it's not an absolute must. And there is plenty of human history pre-apps where they were meditating. And let me just say, the animating insight for me that has driven this whole evangelical side hustle that I'm on, you know, because I do have a day job at yeah. ABC, is that many of us think that happiness is dependent upon external factors. You know, the quality of our finances, the quality of our relationships, the quality of our career, the quality of our childhood, all of which are really important, and I'm not downplaying them in any way. But what the science tells us is that happiness is a skill. And that you can train your mind just the way you can train your bicep in the gym. And that is a massively liberating and radical notion. Completely empowering. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. I will put the app on my phone and Please I'm do. gonna I am gonna try. Go for it. Absolutely. Dan Harris, thank you so much. My pleasure. And Kelly has joined me in the studio. Who knew I could meditate? Who who knew? Who knew? I'm going to try myself. I'm going to use this podcast and take what he said and try to do it at least a couple times a week. Something surprising happens every day. <laughs> so I hope that our listeners have clued into the fact that to go along with our 100th episode. Oh, my goodness. I know. We have a new website Mm -hmm. where they can go sign up for the newsletter if they haven't signed up for the newsletter and leave us questions. As always. And we're also in the midst of a whole week of special podcasts that are 100% mailbag. So if you've been waiting to get your question answered, you've got a better than average shot that we answered it this week. (laughs) And we're working on it. It's a work in progress. The show is, but we are figuring out how we can best answer everyone's questions that we get. Kelly is on this. On it. I think about it. Please know that we're trying. I'm trying. We are definitely (laughs) trying. Okay, what do we have? Our first question is from Ella, who is 17 years old. Okay, I just love that. Can we send Ella something? Absolutely. Okay, Ella, we're going to send you a book because the fact that you're 17 and you're listening and you're writing makes me feel like there's hope for humanity. (laughs) There's hope. Ella, when your question came in, I turned to Hattie and Hayden in the office and said, your question aloud to them, and all of us were just jaws dropped and being like, 
at 17, we were watching reruns of The O.C. or like New York Housewives, like not thinking of this. So we think it's incredible. You're awesome. Here's her question. She writes, hi, Jean and Kelly. I'm 17 years old and will turn 18 in June. I currently have a savings and checking account with a debit card. But I was wondering if you had any advice for a young person who wants to be on top of her finances now, especially when it comes to retirement. Thanks so much for your advice and all of your hard work. Have a great day, Ella. You're awesome. Yeah, you are awesome. And sure, here's here's my big advice for somebody your age who wants to focus on retirement. Open a Roth IRA. So the deal is anybody is allowed to contribute up to $5,500 a year into a Roth IRA. You can be 17 as long as you have earned income. That earned income is the limit up to the 5500 that you can contribute. So Let's say you earn $2,000 over the summer at a job and you want to put $1,000 away for retirement. You can open a Roth IRA. You deposit it. You invest it. Put it to work right away. Your time horizon is longer than it's ever going to be again. I'd put the whole thing in stocks. I wouldn't even worry about bonds or cash. Just buy a total stock market index fund because they're really, really cheap. They're really tax-effective and let it go. And granted, the markets are going to go up and down over your time horizon, be it very long. But historically, we know they will just go up over the long term. And so don't focus on the small movements of this number. Just focus on the fact that you can continue to add to it. And um, one thing you might want to try with your parents, because my guess is you have pretty financially savvy parents to have raised you. If you need, as you're heading off to college, your earned income to pay for things like books, you may want to ask your parents if they'd be into the idea of matching you in this Roth IRA, which would give you a little bit of a leg up in terms of how much you can kick in. I know we're talking about 401k millionaires and thrive after this. Yep. And I have a suspicion that she is going to be one. In like 10 years. In 10 years. <laughs> Good for you, Ella. Thanks for writing in. And we'll do one more from Linda. She writes, Dear Jean, thank you for making this great podcast. It has inspired me to be smarter with my money. But so far, it has been all wishing, and now I want to take action. I currently have a brokerage account that I opened in 2013 after my divorce. I opened it in a panic when I realized I was left with nothing, and I felt I needed to do something to feel a little financially secure. I have been contributing $400 a month since I opened it, and during this time, I've also been able to put another $500 a month in my savings account, plus any bonus I've received. She works in sales. I have seen my brokerage account grow substantially in the same amount of time while my savings grow as well, but just by the amount I add. I would like to invest the money beyond the emergency fund. I have a lot of ideas, but need some guidance to make the jump. I've recently looked into real estate investing, buy to rent as well as fundraise, cryptocurrency investing, and possibly increasing my contribution to my brokerage account or maybe opening a second one. As you can see, my mind is all over the place. I recently contacted a fee-only financial firm to seek advice, but they have a $500,000 investment minimum. I don't meet that criteria. What kind of financial planner would you recommend I seek advice from? So most financial advisors, or I should say many because most is a factual term, <laughs> many financial advisors do not have minimums like that. Some of them don't have minimums at all. You could find a fee-only financial advisor. They're not getting paid based on your assets, and so they are going to be more willing to allow you to pay them either by 
a fee or by the hour for the work that they do for you. You could go to the place, the brokerage firm, where you have your account and get some advice there. They will be willing to help you as well. There may or may not be a fee associated with that. So I'd look at both of those options. As far as the menu of investment options that you laid out, My feeling about this, and it's been my feeling for a very long time, is that boring is better. I like plain, vanilla, inexpensive, boring investments that you can just put money into every single month. You should be putting that $400 away and to work every single time you put it into the portfolio. And my advice would be pick a mix of stocks and bonds that work for you based on your age, based on your risk tolerance, and just put the money to work in that way. And if you can put that brokerage account into a form where you're getting some tax advantages for it, you didn't mention that, but an IRA, a 401k, your money is going to be able to grow faster because you won't have to pay taxes along the way. And on to our Thrive segment. There is a new trend on social media. People are, believe it or not, sharing their 401k balances, especially if they've become 401k millionaires, which there are a lot more of, according to some new research from our sponsor, Fidelity. Fidelity 401k savings accounts with balances of a million or more jumped to 133,000 in number in the third quarter of 2017. That's up from 89,000 a year before. And the best news of all, the percentage of female 401k millionaires doubled in the past dozen years. Now, there are pros and cons of sharing this kind of information online, but for now, let's just focus on how you can become one of these 401k millionaires too. The Financial Samurai blog offers a timeline depending on your asset allocation and your contributions. And for example, if you start with zero and you max out your 401k savings from now on, the contribution limits are $18,500 for 2018, and you set your equity allocation to 100%, you could reach millionaire status in just 18 years. If you go with 60% equity and 40% fixed income, which, by the way, is probably more advisable for more people, the blog calculates it'll take about 20 and a half years. And if you choose 100% cash, which, by the way, I would not advise, it'd look more like 40 years. Now, of course, it is a luxury to be able to max out your 401k, so this is assuming significant savings. If that's not in the cards right now, then hey, my advice is to just contribute enough to meet the employer match if there is one, and if not, start where you can and dial up the amount that you're contributing every year or with every bonus or raise. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Dan Harris for the fantastic conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record our podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with organizational psychologist, Wharton professor, and best-selling author, Adam Grant. We'll talk soon.